0: always are trade-offs even beyond that you know you're fighting runtime and attention spans and you're wanting to make something that's appealing and gets views and actually seen because if you tell this great story but nobody sees it what does it matter so yeah there it's making films is tough uh, but making documentary wildlife films is even tougher
1: Welcome to another episode of Animalia's podcast, where we dive into various topics in the world of climate, conservation, and wildlife. I'm James.
2: And I'm Anna Lee. And this week, we're joined by Los Angeles-based director and editor, Ezra Gentle. Ezra, thank you so much for being here.
0: Hey, thank you guys for having me.
2: So on May 11th, Ezra's short titled Sanctuary was released, and it highlights this touching story of a family of women in Namibia who worked to rescue, rehabilitate, and re-release young baboons into the wild at Kalubi Wildlife Sanctuary. It was such a joy to watch this, and we're actually hosting an upcoming screening for our community, so more details on that soon. I think, firstly, would love to... When I was taking a look at your film reel, first off, you're super talented, I'm really curious to learn about your background and your your connection to filmmaking and where that passion of directing and storytelling began
0: yeah for sure well thank you for watching the film i'm so glad that you liked it it's funny that this movie is now coming out because so much of like my journey with filmmaking involves the vietis the the family in the sanctuary doc i grew up with them in namibia and africa and our families were family friends My dad got to know their dad, uh, and we just would vacation together. We'd go out to their farm. We'd go on game drives. We were always just doing these fun sort of African adventures together. And I moved back to the States when I was a preteen and stayed in touch with them. A couple years ago, I got to go and, and visit them, and their father was sick, and I had started filmmaking. I'd always been interested in movies and then was studying it in college at the time, and they were in the middle of battling their father slash husband's um, skin cancer. And I saw them in Cape Town. He wasn't doing well. And he ended up passing away a little bit after that. And I followed their journey going back to the family farm while I was in college making films and then eventually starting a, another documentary project after college And they were like, you have to come out here, you have to come see what we're doing, what's going on. Life is so difficult. If you can imagine being in the middle of nowhere, an hour and a half from any form of civilization, being four women with almost no money, and you get some orphaned, tortured little baboons that you want to help rescue and rehabilitate and and re-release into the wild and i finally got the opportunity to go back a couple years ago and uh we we spent some time with them my wife and i just sharing sharing their their story and their journey of um just trying to make a tiny small difference in conservation and wildlife
2: amazing that's so cool can you tell us a bit i mean i know you're not quote unquote, a conservationist. But can you tell us from what you've learned? Like, why are there so many orphaned baboons in Namibia?
0: Yeah, I think through this journey, I've become a conservationist to a degree. It was something that you don't really think about until you're faced with it. Um, for me, I grew up around friends that had baby pet baboons. Um, and then when they get older, They are too big and too strong and too aggressive to be a pet and they shouldn't be a pet in the first place that's not what i mean but and so they get older and then they just kill them and um, turn them out in the wild and shoot them so there's already this culture in namibia of having baby baboons as pets and then killing them once they're older and that's sort of how this conservation at kalubi got started is people were just like hey on facebook hey take this little baby baboon we we don't want it anymore more have space for it. it's too aggressive whatever so that's part of it um, the other thing is that there are a lot of hunts in Namibia it's a big part of the economy tourism hunting big game hunting and you get out on those hunts and maybe you don't see the animal you're looking for that day or maybe you do and they're just hunters are bored and they just will shoot a baboon um, typically baboons are viewed as pests because in urban environments or around farms if the property isn't properly managed or the ecosystem isn't properly managed baboons will look for food and maybe they'll end up tearing through your garden or something like that and so a lot of farmers and hunters just view them as pests that need to be gotten rid of and so they'll just shoot them and typically they shoot a mommy baboon which might have one or two three little babies and so then those babies get orphaned and sometimes the the Safari guides are kind enough to pick up these now orphan baby baboons and take them somewhere. And and that's kind of how places like Kalubi, Wildlife Sanctuary, get a lot of the baboons that come into them.
1: For folks here in the US that don't, you know, have a, a good way to understand um, you know, baboon populations and, and ecosystems in a place like Namibia, is it I, I mean, and I don't mean this in a insensitive way. Is it fair to look, do, do, do locals look at baboons in the same way locals here might look at deers in the case of, you know, wild animals that, um, you know, uh, can, can be um, a nuisance if their population uh, gets out of control um, and in the, the way, and obviously we we, you know, don't support deer hunting. Um, but many look at deer hunting here in the United States as a way to kind of keep the populations in rain and its, and its you know, nature in balance, so to speak. Um, and they use that to justify that behavior. Is, that, is, that, is, that, is there an, an analogy there to how um, locals in Namibia look at baboons, or is that, is that way off?
0: Yeah, no, totally. You know, it's, it's the same thing. And hunters in Namibia also say that it's conservation. They say that they're hunting to do population control and if you study conservation you know that that's not 100% accurate and so it goes for baboons and game animals and i think it's the same for in the us deer and raccoons and bears and squirrels you know i know someone that shoots squirrels in their backyard and while i understand that they're pests and a nuisance there are ways to deal with them without killing them because what a lot of people may not realize is those squirrels are part of the food chain for hawks eagles birds of prey and if you're removing that population in a way that is um irresponsible now maybe those birds are going hungry and dying and their offspring are not like and i mean this cycle we know is how species become endangered and eventually extinct and so when you take on a bigger role especially for sport or fun of just saying there's a moving target let's kill it uh, then you become a huge factor in Devastating these animal ecosystems and populations
1: I was gonna say the bigger issue there, like if you look at deers here in the us um, is it's that you know we have lost the apex predators in these ecosystems nature nature is designed to maintain a balance of life. Um, you know nature doesn't need uh, humans help <laughs> to do that what what happens is when you remove apex predators so in the in case of North America is with deers uh North America with deers, um, you know, we've lost wolf populations, um especially in the United States. Um, and when you lose apex predators, then yes, the prey can flourish and um you know populate beyond their means, and then all of a sudden that creates, you know, a need for humans to step in and, you know, quote unquote do nature's job as those that support hunting would tell you. And they're not wrong in the sense that, well, yeah, if we if we strip diversity out of nature and we don't um, allow apex predators Then we need to step in and contain the populations of prey that statement isn't wrong what's wrong is sort of you know kind of glossing over the fact that like well we've also already killed all the wolves here in this case in north america um and that's actually why the deer are um you know overpopulated and so we could actually just support you know wolf reintroduction wolf populations and diversity in nature Um, and then we wouldn't need to hunt deers, but that's, that's obviously not the solution that a hunter or, you know, commercial, um, operations want. And that, that gets lost, I think in this messaging so often. And I imagine it's something similar in Namibia is as soon as you start messing with the overall diversity of life, um, especially with apex predators all the way down. Um, because there are animals that are predators of baboons. Um, well then those animals flourish, those animals then, um impede on on human territory cuz they cuz you know they're overpopulated they don't have their foods, the enough food enough natural food supply and these things just get out of control but the the fact that we lose apex predators in these ecosystems is really sort of the underpinning uh, problem in many cases and it just you know gets very much glossed over um by the the sort of people that condone hunting
0: it is yeah 100% and i think a lot of that comes from just this this greedy murderous sport hunting approach where you see something and you think you should shoot it and you know baboons are it's it's legal to kill them uh, but it's not something that you have to get a tag or even go on hunts for and so I think a lot of this comes from this idea that like we're the dominant species we have to assert our dominance the world is ours for pillage and plunder and when human steps out into the safari plains he can take what he pleases and this ideology which is it's a very western ideology and it's i think what has put us in this global situation that we're in with the environment and climate change and even these little baboons i mean it's if you took out the hubris element from human nature I think we would find a world that's much more in balance with itself.
2: And I think in terms, like, I definitely agree with that. There are are responsible ways to like manage, I guess, like intrusions of wildlife, but also realizing that, especially when you live in spaces where you're so interconnected with nature, like usually it's the people intruding in the wildlife spaces, not the other way around. And I guess, yeah.
1: Sorry, right, Annaline. I, I, I cut you off just because I wanted to make the point um around you know, the the hunting of, you know, uh, of animals is often uh, being framed as conservation, but it's really just sort of uh because we've lost a diversity um that allows nature to police essentially and manage populations directly. And I think that and I just wanted to make sure that that, kind of, that message gets out there.
2: No, absolutely. I'm with you there.
1: I just
0: watched recently um, The Biggest Little Farm, the documentary. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, it's a great film. And that farm, their whole ideology in creating it is to have a farm that's in balance. It's balanced by nature and it's in balance with itself. And So as a problem comes up, their goal is to find a natural world solution. And tons of problems come up. And you think, okay, this is the breaking point. This is where... You cop out and you do something like all these farms around you are doing, whether that's pesticides or coverings over all your plants and vegetation or, you know, killing predators. And they constantly find ways to solve those problems naturally that has actually a greater benefit to the land and the environment. And they end up creating this beautiful farm that flourishes. And I think, yeah, it takes way more work. And yeah, it's not as fun as just... um, protecting all your fruits and vegetables with coverings but there is a reward i think in the balance of humans and nature and in environment and conservation and when you can find that balance i think that's when a deep primal need in humans really comes alive
1: it's the it's the the push and pull that balance against um, you know the what capitalism wants, which is um, you know the greatest profit wins, right? I mean, the dirty little secret about pesticides and fertilizers and stuff is that you know they're really a product of um, our shift over the last hundred years into monoculture farming and single crop farming at massive scale um, and you know that's needed as we've grown population and as you want to bring down the unit economic costs of a, of, of food. Because, you know, Biggest Little Farm shows you doing it in the right natural way. Biodiversity um, is actually uh, more beneficial and and, and prevents the needs for those augmentations. And what those augmentations do is they further, it's like a vicious cycle because then bringing in pesticides and and fertilizers further pushes biodiversity down um, and then creates the need for them more and more. Um, And it's just a sort of vicious cycle down to you eventually get to a place where you actually, the, co- the, the, sort of, uh, the cost benefits are no longer there. You're spending so much on fertilizer and, for, and, and pesticides to augment nature that you have like, destroyed in your area um, that you, know, you actually would make more money as a farmer if you went back to biodiversity. But you, know, you made more money in the augmentation way, like through that progression, you eventually get to a place where um, you're too far deep. Um, and so it's just, that's uh, kind of like one of the dir- many dirty secrets in the agriculture business that I'm sure we could probably dedicate a whole podcast around at some point.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, we totally could. And I think it comes down to what do you want at the end of the day? Do you want money or happiness? Because they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of billionaires that are miserable and the average income, uh, like the highest happiness level is 70000 dollars a year so you know what are you chasing
1: um ezra let's talk a little bit about the sort of role of wildlife and or sorry world filmmaking and wildlife conservation um so you what was the journey like for you uh, often wildlife filmmakers when, when making anything in this subject matter have trade-offs they have to make behind the scenes uh, that people sort of don't see that don't you know don't make the the cutting room floor and there's lots of examples of these with films of the past what did did you encounter any of that where you uh, were there were there trade-offs you had to make uh, when making this film when you're sort of having to optimize for you know making this approved by the family approved by the government approved and also you know wanting it to get mass appeal?
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, that is always one of the biggest challenges and also trade-offs of filmmaking is that there are so many sign-offs and approvals you have to get, whether you're making a big Hollywood studio film or a wildlife conservation film. Someone always has something at stake, right? So you have to have them say, okay, yes, I approve this message. So yeah, that can be really difficult, especially in a place like Namibia, which I love, I still consider it my home, but it is extremely closed-minded and there is still a lot of racism there. And there is a biracial relationship in our film. And that was something that we had to dial back. We couldn't really highlight that and show that. And we couldn't share the stories of the, I don't want to say oppression, but the um, discrimination that they've gotten in public that obviously that shouldn't happen to them. That should never be um, they shouldn't be experiencing, you know, shame in a mall from older white ladies that you know, say that she shouldn't be dating this this colored guy, um, which is the appropriate name for that. It seems racist in America to call someone colored, but in South Africa and Namibia, they are considered. Um, you know, different people groups have different names, and colored is one of them. Um, so that was a big trade off: is dialing back the racism thing. It's actually, you know. Namibia, I hate to say it, is also still a sexist nation. It's very much um, much culture. Um, you know, male chauvinists are still very prevalent there. And because of that, they sort of want to squash and kibosh the strong females that eventually, you know, get power, whether it's a wildlife conservation or in government or in business. They don't love that. And so that was something that we kind of had to, we had to dial back the female power and oppression in the film, because a lot of the neighbors around the Vietti's don't see them as they don't, a lot of the neighbors around the Vietti's don't give them as much credibility or authority as they would a male. Even when their dad, Johnny was around, they treated him completely differently. It was respect and help when it could be given. But now that he's gone, they really don't give those same things to the women. Um, but that was also something we had to take out of the film because again, they thought the neighbors might see it and get offended or seek retribution even, um, but even more than that, there was a really chilling scene that kind of spooked me when we were filming and there were poachers out on their land and you could hear the truck. You could even sort of see the lights in the distant bush. And Renee felt like there was nothing she could do about it. She said, I'm a woman. What am I supposed to do? If my husband were here, he would go out there and he would stop this, but I have to just accept it. And she knows that the poachers are her neighbors. She has seen their airplanes chasing herds of elephants and they sort of herd them into a corner of the fence and then they they shoot them from the airplane and go down and harvest the ivory tusks. So poaching is still a huge issue there, but that was something they didn't want in the film in fear of. It affecting the government approving their sanctuary status. They had an application pending to be recognized as a wildlife conservation, and they were afraid that if this scene were in there, the government might not like how it's portraying them or portraying the region and not approve their sanctuary status. So I, there always are trade offs. Even beyond that, you know, you're fighting runtime and attention spans, and you're wanting to make something that's appealing and gets views and actually seen because. If you tell this great story, but nobody sees it, what does it matter? So yeah, there it's making films is tough, uh, but making documentary wildlife films is even tougher. Through the editing process, we had to make a lot of tough decisions of taking stuff out and adding stuff. It was a very long process actually. From the time I shot to the time the film was released, it was actually two and a half years. And part of that was because I got slammed with work When I got back from Africa and I did an Elton John project during his retirement and then I jumped on another documentary and things were just crazy on my end. And then I finally got a cut of the movie together and I sent it to them. And, you know, half the time they don't have internet and their entire day is dedicated to this now troop of baboons that they're taking on walks. Many of them, they're bottle feeding multiple times a day. It's a full-time job and a half. So they were slow to provide feedback and get back to me. And then it was, okay, take this scene out. or Okay, this has changed here, so that doesn't reflect this anymore, or we need to update that. And ultimately, it ended up being a really good thing that the process took so long, because the ending of the film now, spoiler alert, is they have 12 baboons, mostly babies, and one has been successfully re-released into the wild. And if we'd released the film sooner or finished it or rushed it out, that wouldn't have been the ending. It would have been this question mark of, well, here's kind of what we're trying to do, but we don't know how it's going to work. And so it is really rewarding to now see they have released one successfully and they have these 12 that have come from all over the country and people are finding out about them. So yeah, it was just a long, lengthy back and forth process. Um, And, you know, some of the the scenes I took out, I made decisions to take out myself because I thought, okay, this is really great, um, but maybe it doesn't fit the story that we're actually trying to tell now.
1: Ezra, are they are they fully uh, run to just their donations and grants, or how do they what, what are they what are they relying on financially?
0: Financially, it's difficult for them because they don't have any donations or grants coming in. They just got their sanctuary status. They are still not yet set up as a charitable organization, a 501 c so they can't get tax deductible donations. Um, They don't do hunts. There's no hunting allowed on the farm, which all of the surrounding farms do hunts. And if you had a hunt for a kudu, I mean, you're talking about, you know, you could probably make $20,000 US uh, for a really good prize kudu hunt. So they kind of rely on uh, the small proceeds they get from selling things at the market in town. They have a couple tourists that occasionally come, usually friends or friends of friends in Namibia and South Africa. But yeah, they're kind of struggling financially to keep everything running. It's expensive to feed 12 baboons. They've since expanded the animals they're taking in just out of necessity. And they have a warthog. And some other little creatures, I don't even remember, they have like a gerbil or a, I think they have some dossies, which are kind of like a, a gerbil, but it's like a bigger, it's a rock hyrax that lives in the mountains. But yeah, it's a struggle to make money in Namibia and it's a struggle for the Vietis to support this entire wildlife conservation operation.
1: Um, Yeah. Do you think there's a scenario where people, could you make, the same amount from trophy and big game hunting, uh, as you could from, uh, sort of observation and, and, sci- and scientific programs. What I mean is, uh, not just driving around and looking at, uh, wildlife, um, uh, but, uh, the interaction part being allowing people pay to sort of be trained as a scientist and be a scientist for a day or a weekend or a week, uh, collecting information, um, sort of working with biologists and conservationists and locals, um, and that replaces the sort of rush of of hunting. Do, do you think there's any path where that, you know, one day people would pay just as much for observation and, and you know, sort of the glory of uh, an excitement of being a scientist for a day um, as they would being a hunter for a day?
0: Yeah, totally. I think there's definitely a path and even a world where hunting could be replaced with these observational safaris, but also like you're saying, these uh, scientific studies and opportunities to really get your hands dirty studying an animal or a species or even a plant in a region that's protected, that is funded by grants, that's set up as a sanctuary where there is no poaching taking place on the land and there are obviously no hunts either i think that is a an experience to be way more rewarding for people because you're giving back to the environment and you're even helping sustain the environment by studying these things if it's a disease in a certain species maybe you find a cure for that disease so now that species is around for hundreds or thousands of years You know, there are a lot of places in Namibia, uh, like the Atosha National Park and Irindi Game Reserve, that they only do observational safaris and expeditions. Uh, They don't, as far as I know, they don't have a, a scientific angle. But the Vietis with the Kalubi Wildlife Sanctuary would love to have volunteers and even paid people on staff. They want to have vets, they want to have scientists, they want to have doctors. Uh, and even botanists out there studying these species that are indigenous to Namibia, especially the Northwestern part of Namibia, where um, there are a lot of, it's a, it's a unique climate and there are a lot of plants and animals that don't live in other parts of the world. So I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I definitely believe that there is a universe where everything can be sustained by the study and flourishment of species in the wildlife.
1: In terms of uh, filmmaking and the role filmmaking plays at conservation, what are, what are your first thoughts? Like if, if we were just to ask you, Ezra, what, what is the role filmmaking should play in conservation and climate change? What's your sort of just off the cuff reaction to that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people
0: should do it. <laughs> um, it's, you know, we consume media and information by video. At this day and age, that is where such a huge chunk of our information and knowledge comes from. I don't have a percentage, or I don't know if anyone can even quantify that. But um, there is a, a statistic that eighty percent of websites with video on them are going to be uh, more, or it's it, websites with videos are eighty percent more engaging and retain more web traffic than websites without video content. And that's how all these apps exist. you know. Instagram and TikTok and Facebook are primarily video apps now, not to mention YouTube. So I think the message of conservation and the message of climate change is going to be shared through film and video. And I think if, if there's something that we care about saving or stopping, then it needs to be made into a film and video and put out on the internet for people to see it, because otherwise, how are we going to know about it?
1: How should a filmmaker balance sort of showcasing conservation and needs in its truest form with the reality that they are also competing for attention? Uh, they and that means typically trying to be a you know a political and. Um, that means trying to sort of, uh, be very, very light and touching on things that have a lot of, uh, you know, controversy and focusing on sort of beauty and wonder and magic that, you know, is more mass appealing cause they need to, they need to sell that film or that show and they need ratings, um, you know, or, you know, avoiding the obvious things of playing into sort of the, the stereotypes that, you know we have for different forms of wildlife again from a rating standpoint like how what is the responsibility of a filmmaker to balance the, the the realities of the sort of modern world and competing for attention with a you know glut gluttony of content out there with trying to be as true as they can be to the you know animals and wildlife and nature and then its needs like what's the what is the responsibility of the filmmaker how 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 should a filmmaker strike that balance
0: yeah totally i mean i'm sure every film is different but i think at the end of the day it has to be entertaining if it's not entertaining people aren't going to watch it and that's the point of entry we choose what we consume by saying oh that looks entertaining to me that looks like a show or a movie i would enjoy or even a book or an experience. We're looking for things to entertain us. And I think if you can take that wrapper of entertainment and package wonderful truths and nuggets and messages in it that can really land and stick, I think that's what I've seen work. That's what's successful. Because the alternative is a really brash, gory, Um, sort of expose type film or book or show where it's like this horrible thing is happening and this is why you should care about it and this is awful and we all have to stop it at all costs yeah that's true and yes that's the message but when you package it that way are you are you more likely to click that or are you more likely to click something that seems really fun and engaging but then has this powerful message inside of it do you know what i'm saying
2: Absolutely. I agree with you there. It's like once we, sometimes it's like we, we do care about things, but we we don't realize that like, I don't know, I guess a lot of times like there are nature films or nature shows and they are very like explicit. But when you're blending in a story that has layers upon layers about loss or love or um, just like resiliency, like you're, you're able to grasp or connect to the deeper issue, which in this case would be conservation and baboons.
0: Yeah, well, even with my film, you know, really, it's also about humans, because it's about these, these humans grief of losing their dad and husband, and how they process it. And that by itself doesn't seem like a really engaging story to me you said hey do you want to watch a movie about these women that their dad died and then they were super depressed for a long time not really that doesn't sound appealing but if you say oh hey there's this family of women in africa and they're rescuing baboons and the baboons have kind of become a form of animal therapy for them as they're processing the loss of their father they have been able to overcome their own depression and anxiety by caring for these baboons nurturing them and re-releasing them into the wild that sounds engaging that sounds like it's entertaining, but has a message. So it's both. It's like, you have to meet the audience halfway, have the faith that they want to have a message and that they want to feel like they now have something that they can help, a purpose that they can help with or a mission, but also that you gave them a really great experience for two hours.
1: Is I guess going back to that responsibility question is, is good story enough to define that responsibility because let take two examples of different uh series that were massively successful um planet earth and tiger king from a and i say successful purely on a rating standpoint um because both of those uh those series to me completely missed the boat and missed the opportunity to actually get anybody off their butt and um you know actually involved or caring about what's going on in this planet uh in planet earth um it sort of overly beautifies everything and um yeah it's the cinematography is unbelievable but it it you know doesn't even begin to touch on the realities of what these species and these ecosystems are facing and how dire they are and how much we need to act and how much we need to change our behavior to support them and then in the opposite you have tiger king which yeah, it was a great story in terms of just of its appeal with the, you know, ridiculousness of the characters. And, of course, when you have people like Doc Antler and, um, and uh, Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin and, you know, how can you not pull away from, from these three just, you know, absurd um, and kind of decrepit human beings? Um, so, of course, that's good TV, but totally missed an opportunity actually showcase what's going on with these big cats i mean they're almost they're almost like a backdrop in the scene like they they weren't even the subject at all so there's two examples of of filmmaking that were great stories from a you know was it appealing to people um standpoint because incredible ratings but they both completely missed the boat on doing anything for conservation or the climate so you know with that in mind is there a different way we can sort of adjust the definition of the responsibility of a wildlife filmmaker um, beyond just telling good story, knowing that like, those are two examples of great stories that, that did nothing for conservation.
0: Well, I mean, do we know that they did nothing because that show is a show Tiger Kings, everyone has seen it. So it's definitely out there. And for a lot of people, I think it put big cats on the map. I don't think people really considered tigers in America before that show. And now it's like, oh, okay, this is a thing and it's out there and it is a big problem. As far as like, there what they can do with about it. And and for it, I don't know if there was like a specific takeaway other than the fact that don't go to these places. You know, I grew up about an hour away from where Joe Exotic and the Tiger King had his whole um, exotic zoo. I never went there. Um, It wasn't intentional, though, it just wasn't really, I grew up poor. And so we just it wasn't like a thing we planned to do. We never had the money for it. But I knew a lot of people that went. I knew a lot of people that went and took these pictures with these cubs. And now that that film has come out, I think everyone that went that I knew now sees it for what it really was. And they see it for a horrible treatment of big cats and an entire industry that is thriving off of the oppression of animals that should be in the wild and shouldn't even be on this continent. And so, yes, it is about some crazy characters in a story, but what's the last film or book or buzzy podcast that came out about big cats and their mistreatment that anyone thought about or cared about or talked about? And so while there may not have been like a call to action at the end of Tiger King, I feel like people will maybe i'm naive again but i feel like people will think twice now before going to some of these operations before going to a place like doc ansell's or um joe exotics in oklahoma
1: fortunately the data doesn't show that i think for uh, you know ezra people like me you and annalee and our, our 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 social groups our circles our bubbles um you know that is the reaction right but uh, all the data that's been released and and publicized from the press is that not only has Winwood, uh, you know, exotic whatever he calls the his, their park uh, reopen and and crowds are flourishing, uh, Tiger Big Cat Camps, Carol Baskins, everyone is getting incredible rush on business and tourism, like their business has exploded in popularity. Um, so the data says otherwise. The data says that. This has done nothing at, on, a, on a on a scale level to uh, support tigers. It's done the complete opposite um, because you know their business is not going down. Their business has exploded in the last forty five days.
0: Wow, that's awful. That's terrible. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know what what is the solution? What is the answer? It's like you know they're always implicit actions and reactions to everything we do. And I mean, would it, would it have been better if Tiger King had instead been a uh, six or eight part documentary series on the cat industry in America and how awful it is. And I mean, there's this film blood lions, which is about canned lion hunts in South Africa and uh, it happens in Namibia too. And basically these farms breed lions, from cubs and they grow them up and they have hunters come. They pay twenty to thirty thousand U.S. dollars to go out into the bush and shoot a lion that they raised up from a baby and has pretty much been trained, uh, not to perform tricks, but just not to attack. And a lot of times these lions are sedated before they're shot. Uh, and this is still a huge industry. But no, my point is, nobody saw that film. Nobody cares. I mean that that movie just graphically portrays how awful this industry is. And there are more canned animal hunts now than there were in 2015 when that came out. So, you know, what is, what is the solution?
1: And that, and that's the question, right? That's the, that's why this is, you know, worthy of discussion and and such a hard thing to figure out because that's exactly the point. Like there is a version of Tiger King that, you know, shed a light on what's really going on for those, those, those big cats, but it would not, it would not be the number one show in America and Netflix, you know, let's not pretend Netflix cares anything about anything other than subscriber growth. There is not one, one other aspect that Netflix has any concern about with the impact of their film on society. No, like they want subscriber growth. They are in an incredible cutthroat competition um, with all the streaming competition to continue to be number one. And uh, they, they, they're not optimizing for anything else. And so, yes the the version of that and and you know i you know maybe the answer is like cuz i i agree like a version that just talks about and just shows the the horrors a horror show if you will of what these big cats really go through is not going to be as appealing and is going to be off-putting and not get shared and discussed socially but you know maybe there's an angle where we can focus more on those big cats around their social dynamic and i think i think one of the things missing for so many people and for a lot of the people that go to you know, Joe Exotic's camp or Doc Antlers or Carol Baskins is they're missing the understanding that, you know, these, these creatures have so much in common with us from a social and emotional intelligence standpoint, that they have social dynamics and, um, uh, and, and compassion and empathy and fear. And, uh, you know, a lot of us just sort of think that a tiger, for example, is just a big hungry predator and it, pretty much just spends a day, like, what would we say? Oh, they, they hunt, they sleep and they, they mate. It's all they do. Um, as if there's nothing going on in the, in the brain of that animal, um, outside of those three activities. Um, and that's just not true. And I think one of the things sort of missing is the, uh, sort of the ability to showcase how similar we are and that to then create some empathy of like, would you want to be living your life this way? Um, but you have to first make them relatable. You have to first make those animals relatable to you as a person and the things you go through day to day in order for you to then be like, oh, I don't want, I wouldn't want that for myself. This now feels unjust. But if you don't make that connection, if you continue to sort of allow people to think there is such a gap between us and wildlife in terms of the complexity of their, of their behavior, of their, of their life, of their biology of their, um, social dynamics, um, of their ecosystems, it, when those things are glossed over, there remains this massive gap in, in sort of understanding and, uh, an empathy. And then without that gap being closed, you can't actually get people to care. And so to me, it's less about like, oh, let's do a 60 minute film around, um, you know, the horrors of what's going on, you know, at these big cat zoos, which you could do and is true but it's more about how do we actually get people to understand we're not that far away. Like we have a lot more in common than we realize. And then once you make that connection, you sort of start to like, it's quick to see like, I wouldn't want to live that way myself.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think that's creating that empathy with animals is what I was trying to do in the sanctuary because everyone in Namibia sees baboons as a pesky nuisance that is overpopulated. And if you realize that we have a lot in common with them, they'll ride on your shoulders and groom your hair looking for little things, and they will laugh at your jokes. And it's insane. You, um, And so I think, I guess the role of, you know, artists and filmmakers is to tell stories where you can, and however you can, in ways that can impact even your own small social circle i think if you know my film if it did anything or does anything um, i would be content in knowing that everyone that saw my film in namibia and south africa thought twice about pet baboons or killing baboons um, and instead wanted to help see them get back into the wild and i think that can if that happens on a lot of little levels, a lot of microcosms, maybe we're not talking about your show being on Netflix, but maybe we're talking about affecting a hundred people around you. I think it would have a huge impact on the global ecosystem and conservation as a whole.
2: Well said, I think, I think, yeah, your film does a great job in like making that connection about how they aren't so different from us and how there there's like, an essence of humanity inside of them and whenever we were able to connect that hopefully it does cause like those small changes especially like you're saying within those local communities that are obviously surrounded by baboons daily not so much even north americans but like local people
0: yeah when well, you know maybe um the person i know that Shoot squirrels in his backyard will see it and be like, hmm, you know maybe I shouldn't shoot the squirrels. maybe they're not so bad after all,
1: certainly I think a lot of people who even you know shoot a baboon or shoot a deer or shoot a squirrel uh, sort of have this this it's just like this weird I talk to the, the people that, that engage in these behaviors and it's a it's a weird dichotomy where they they like acknowledge that the animal um you know is 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 otherwise good and they would say like i you know, if they weren't a past, if they weren't here, I I, I I, respect them and I would like, you know, I'd like, I wish they would just keep, keep, leave me alone and I would leave them alone. And, and it's sort of like this, you know, well, they're infringing on me and, um, you know, I, I have a right to my, my space, my territory. Um, and I think it just, the, it again that gap, that, that, that speciesism sort of mentality and feeling like, you know, at the end of the day, we are superior um, because, you know, we can do more complex things and we are, we can do more complex things. We can, we can create things. We can do complex things in a good way. We can also do complex things in a really bad way. Um, and so, but it's, it is that speciesism that continues to be prevalent throughout society that to me is really the bigger issue here because, you know, with speciesism comes this, 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 this entitlement, um, in that, like, Hey, I'm fine with wildlife or, non-human species, as long as they don't mess with me, as long as they don't alter, um, you know, what I want and what I want is just continued growth. I need like, that's, that's human civilization, right? Just continued growth, continued consumption. And as long as they don't mess with that, I'm fine. But of course, like earth is a fixed mass. Um, like it doesn't get bigger. Uh, you know, of course we're going to encroach on them in all aspects, in all areas of the world, if we continue to grow and grow and grow. And so, you know, if you don't fix the species issue, um, you know, I, I don't think you're ever, we're ever going to get out of this mess, uh, because like that, that to me just is a fundamental gap. Um, and the same thing with racism is, right? Like if, if we don't address racism and acknowledge that it exists, we're never going to actually, you know, create equality across races. We have to, We have to acknowledge racism is all over our society, and it's terrible, and it exists, and we, you know, we can't say just because, oh, I don't behave as a racist doesn't mean racism doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that you don't sort of partake indirectly in things that are racist, um, even unknowingly. And the same thing with speciesism. If you don't acknowledge it exists and we don't hit, if we don't attack that head on, um, we're we're probably never going to get out of this, uh, this cycle of, um, you know, just endangering and, and, and running species into extinction.
0: Totally. And I think it comes down to, every life has value. And if you believe that every life has value, then you won't be racist, and you won't kill a squirrel or a baboon, and you probably won't even flip someone off that cuts you off in traffic. When you believe that every life has value, it puts you on a level playing field with everything else you come in contact, whether that's a pest, or a human. And I think it makes you view things differently. If you realize we're equal in terms of life, I am not entitled to anything that they aren't entitled to, I might make more money or have a bigger house. But they are just as human or if it's an animal just as alive and have their own life that they're living as I do. I think when you and that's, you know, are, are people going to adopt that mentality? Is that going to become a thing? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. it seems like we're going the opposite direction. But I think you have to find the reward in that mentality. Because it's a much more rewarding life to live, viewing that everything has life and value around you, because then you feel privileged to be a part of it instead of frustrated by it. So instead of that squirrel that's annoying you, you're like, you know what, that's, this squirrel was created and they do this thing for our ecosystem and our environment. And the same with baboons and um, the same with all animals and, and even different races. And so I think we all have to get to a point where we can um, value life at its core.
1: Um, well, thanks, Ezra, for the time. Um, appreciate you putting that film together. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely do our part in sharing it out to our community so they uh, they get a chance to enjoy it. Um, and uh, yeah, it was good, good chatting, good hanging out.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was wonderful talking with you guys, and I love everything that you guys are doing for wildlife conservation around the globe.
1: Um, But for the folks listening, uh, May 26th to June 1st, uh, we're hosting a week-long online uh, conference um, with some of the top experts in the world working with pangolins, uh, which is the most trafficked uh, wildlife in the world, and, um, you know, possible link and carrier to COVID-19. But uh, we have gathered some of the top experts in the world. Every day we're going to have a different session for seven days, and uh, it's completely free. Uh, we just really want to create awareness and support for this, uh, for this animal, which is in, in dire straits and, uh, kind of the world's underdog, the pangolin. And so, um, yeah, we'll, uh, continue to kind of push it on our social media, but make sure to RSVP, grab a ticket as, if you want to attend as well, you'll probably enjoy it. Um, and,
0: uh, Oh, that sounds amazing. I don't understand. Um, why they're the most trafficked animals. So I would love to learn more about it.
1: Well, we'll, we'll dive, delve into that amongst um, a lot of things. But We have speakers actually from uh, Southeast Asia, um, China, Africa, um, North America, South America. So we sort of really covering the gamut on kind of the global um, effort to save the species. Yeah, great. Well, thanks everybody, uh, and uh, till next week. Thanks, Ezra. Have a good day. All right, see ya.